Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR and Uprise Radio is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge that Australia is a crime scene and that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations peoples listening today. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Uprise Radio. And I'm going to give a little intro here um, on a topic that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been following pretty closely, um, talking about AUKUS, uh, the new partnership with Australia, the UK and the United States. And we've got a couple of really fabulous guests that Jackson's going to introduce in a moment, but I'm just going to set the scene a little bit. On a cold September night, Australians interested in foreign policy waited with nervous energy as a coming announcement from the Australian Prime Minister with US President was coming the following morning at 7am. It was not a declaration of war, but it was a timely reminder of the role that Australia wants to play in the Pacific and the relationship Australia has with the United States. While the US President Biden might have forgotten Australian Prime Minister's name, it might have made us think that this is an arrangement that was hastily put together just to upset China. But this story is one that is much deeper, one that has often had Australia as the one pulling the US into conflict rather than the perception being the other way around. The nuclear fueled submarines are a glamour piece of the announcement, but just as interesting to us, I think the details around information sharing, increased satellites at Pine Gap, further troop installments at Darwin, and just before Jackson introduced the guests, I just want to mention, and you know, we'll talk about it perhaps uh, at the end as well, but a couple of us are involved in putting together an event which is going to be running tomorrow night on Zoom, the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be taking place tomorrow night at 7pm and you can find the details at Renegade Activists uh, on webpage or through the social media pages of Uprise Radio and Renegade Activists. So the meeting itself has got a greater range of guests that are going to be speaking, but it's also a chance for activists um, that are in their local areas. We've split up into cities and, and states to get together and to organise. Uh, as well over 100 people are already attending at time of recording. And it's really, I think, going to be the first time in a long time that we've had some breath put back into the anti-war movement. And Jackson, we've got two really great guests to kind of set the scene for listeners who may be going along to that or who are just following the story. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really exciting event. I look forward to attending and, you know, huge thanks to the work you and Mercedes have already done to put all of that together along with, you know, other members of Renegade activists. Um, but yeah, it's really nice to have this kind of primer today on Uprise Radio and we are joined by two learned guests, uh, Clinton Fernandez, Professor of International and Political Studies and author of Island Off the Coast of Asia, Instruments of Statecraft in Australian Foreign Policy, as well as Dr. Emma Shortis, who is a research fellow at RMIT, a historian focused on US history and politics and recent proud author of Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Uh, thanks to both of you for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. So, Emma, to start with you, there was a lot of pomp and ceremony surrounding the announcement that James just recounted. And while 
a gushing Australian media focused on the significance and strength of this alliance. Perhaps overshadowed was the increasing rhetoric around a new Cold War that has apparently already begun. Biden was mentioning growing threats that will evolve in the Indo-Pacific and regular ANU analyst Hugh White said, in this escalating rivalry between America and China, we are siding with the US and we are betting they are going to win this one and put China back in its box. I wonder, Emma, as a historian focusing on the USA, could you remind our listeners of the role the US played in the last so-called Cold War, which was much more of a hot war in much of the developing world? In, and with that in mind, can you reflect on why do you think the US is so often presented as a force of stability within Australian political circles? Yeah, that's a big question. And look, I think it, it the US has historically been presented that way to Australians, you know, basically from the beginning of, of our security, of Australia's security alliance with the United States. And, and that, you know, that's for a number of reasons. And it goes back to the Cold War and, and I suppose the, the choice that Australian governments made post the Second World War, really, to kind of seek out this big, benevolent, white protector for, for Australia. And that speaks to, to deep anxieties in white Australia about, um, you know, people who don't look like our governments and the threat, the existential threat that they pose to us as we live on stolen land. And so that connection, that that seeking the US as that kind of beacon of, of stability is deeply connected to, to that history, you know, beyond just the Cold War. But I think this, this kind of invocation of the Cold War is, are really um, kind of fascinating and, and scary at the same time because as a historian I'm kind of I'm pretty reluctant to, to kind of draw those immediate parallels because then we get this kind of sense of inevitability about how things are going to play out that I think is is risky for a number of reasons but there are also some really significant parallels because at the beginning of the Cold War the United States was interested in containing the Soviet Union and the rising threat of the Soviet Union and we see this language echoed kind of almost exactly but a lot of that was based on appalling misunderstandings of Soviet intentions and assumptions that the Soviets were, you know, hell-bent on global communist revolution at, at any cost, which is not to say that they weren't focused on global communist revolution, but they were mostly focused at the beginning of the Cold War on regional stability and ensuring the longevity of their own regime. And, you know, I think we can say a similar thing about the Chinese regime and the miscalculations that the United States is making. And once again, you know, the Australian government is tying us incredibly closely to the United States and it's continued, I think, strategic miscalculations. And also, of course, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, this kind of unending desire to, to reinforce and spread American power. Lincoln, I wonder if, um, you know, you've written about the, the role that Australia is playing in, it, in the region here. What do you make of this latest, um, the, the AUKUS announcement? I mean, I think that submarines as a military you know, weapon for Australia obviously kind of makes sense. You know, we live in an island as a military kind of tactic. That's something that makes sense. And, you know, we were speaking before the show started about uh, Jacob from Friday Rave, and he's made the point that the French subs were most likely going to be nuclear armed at some point anyway. Uh, if we get, I mean, happy to talk about the submarines themselves, but what are the other parts of the, of the, the alliance and the deal that you can see? Well, I'd like to start by trying to answer uh, the question that you posed at the very beginning. And you said something about how the US president uh, couldn't remember our prime minister's name. Well, 
Imagine if we had a sub-imperial ally somewhere in the South Pacific. You wouldn't expect the Australian prime minister to remember that person's name either. Okay? And that's the role we play. Uh, the United States um, uh, is a modern imperial system. It's, it sits at the apex of a hierarchically structured imperial system, uh, which is defined not by physical occupation of territory, but by control of other countries' sovereignty. And that control can be achieved through uh, force, the threat of force, the use of force, intelligence operations. You know, uh, you can see what uh, Australia does in Timor, for example, by by spying on their government. Uh, you can also do it through free trade agreements, through intellectual property rights. So these are imperial systems that are designed to limit uh, the, the political sovereignty of other countries. And in that system, we are not a client state. We are not a subjugated power. We are a sub-imperial power. We have our own area of influence. And... Uh, uh, we uphold the U.S. system in our region and elsewhere. And if we were to have a similar power to ours uh, somewhere in the Southwest Pacific, uh, you know, we don't. Uh, but if there was some uh, small country trying to be a little sparta uh, of Southwest Pacific, we would immediately ally with them and uh, probably forget their prime minister's name as well. Uh, now, with that background, I mean, I don't mean to say any of this as caricature or irony. I am uh, absolutely serious about the idea of an imperial power and a sub-imperial power. Uh, in that sense, uh, the biggest role of the national security establishment uh, is to demonstrate greater relevance to the United States. And from their perspective, acquiring submarines and expanding the number of facilities available to the United States and Australia is a policy success. Uh, you know, the more dangerous the United States feels its position is, the more vulnerable it becomes in Japan, or Taiwan or the Northern Philippines, uh, the more attractive Australia becomes as a secure location. Uh, now, from that perspective, those submarines fulfill the role for which they're in uh, intended. Um, the role of these submarines is not to hunt other submarines. It's not primarily even to kill other ships. Uh, these submarines, if we're assuming the Virginia-class submarines, uh, which are the U.S. Navy's version, uh, they have uh, between 35 and 65 uh, Tomahawk missiles in, these, in them. Uh, and um, these are subsonic missiles. They fly below the speed of sound. They can be reprogrammed in flight. Uh, the United States fired more than 300 of them in about three hours during uh, uh, 2003 Iraq war. And our submarines that we're getting, if we're getting the Virginia class, are designed to attack land targets. And therefore, because they're nuclear powered, it means land targets far from home, most likely in the Taiwan Strait. This is the second time that we've spoken to you, Clinton, and you've said that recent purchases by Australia are characterized by their offensive capabilities. How does that fit uh, into the, re the constant rhetoric of a rising external threat? You know, is this because America now uh, that forward defence is just the starting point for all, you know, I, I just, I just oh. find it incredible that if, if, if this, and I think Emma's point is a really interesting one about the inevitability of so much of the language. Uh, I just, is, is that the case that, that this is, to both of you, I wonder, do you think that this is, there is an inevitable conflict on the horizon or is it just ratcheting paranoia, particularly on the, on the Western side? Well, Emma's obviously got uh, much greater research and background on this, but my brief comment would be that the exaggeration of American vulnerability is their tradition. 
Uh, in fact, there's a journal article about this called The Exaggeration of American Vulnerability, Anatomy of the Tradition. Uh, they always have to create a, uh, a field of like a flux, and you're not sure who started it. You know, there's always some, uh, you know, uh, threat, and it's always act in, in a defensive fashion. I can't think of a single superpower uh, that's uh, throughout his era in history that hasn't presented its uh, its actions as defensive. But I'll I'll cede now to Emma. Um, look, I, I mean, I guess I, I agree with with everything that Clinton just said, but I, I'd also say, you know, I'd agree completely that the the language that we are seeing in the kind of mainstream conversation, at least about this new agreement, is is predicated on the inevitability of conflict. You know, you see people talking about, oh, well, within the next ten years, this is what's going to happen. Sometimes that gets reduced down to six, but there's you know, for me, there's kind of like this sense in the mainstream media coverage that we're like living out the first few chapters of tomorrow when the war began. And, you know, this is why Australia has to prepare itself and why it has to acquire nuclear powered submarines, probably while we have to have a nuclear power industry and then acquire nuclear weapons. You know, you can see how the, the kind of creeping logic of national security is at work here. And, and for me as a historian, you know, I think the first thing I would say is that war is not inevitable. Conflict is not inevitable. And we have to keep repeating that. And we have to keep pushing back on this language that so often just uncritically deploys the line that, you know, this new agreement is necessary because of rising aggression from China. And that is always, always framed as if this so-called rising aggression was happening completely independently of anything that the United States is doing or anything that Australia is doing. You know, this is a kind of fundamental difference between you know the shared values of democracy and Chinese values and that language and that the constant ratcheting up I think serves a very particular political purpose and serves the interests particularly of the United States which you know as, as Clinton has so clearly outlined is is by basically set up to see anything, any potential threat to its power, any kind of rising economic might as a as a threat and and the, a threat that has to be contained in order to maintain US hegemony. And I think Australia has historically, you know, Australian governments have been very, very happy to to play that kind of sub-imperial role as, as Clinton was saying. And and again, describing war and conflict as inevitable and inevitable regardless of what we do um, serves a very particular purpose. Emma, I'm wondering um, if you could speak a little bit about the shift, uh, the relatively recent shift, particularly with the Trump administration, from the use of the language of Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific uh, and the development of the Indo-Pacific strategy. So, uh, I mean, Clinton mentioned before uh, about the hierarchy that under mines the political sovereignty of other states that the US kind of holds. And I'm, I'm Wondering, I mean, the, the, the use of this term Indo-Pacific seems to me to have some colonial undertones and repositioning that power within a region almost like a new discovery. Um, and I'm just wondering if, you know, you could talk a little bit about the, the importance of that and what that means in terms of the relationship to China in, in, that, uh, in the geopolitical sense. Yeah, look, I guess I'd say, you know, there, there's so much, it's kind of endless analysis in, in the kind of think tank IR space, or like Australia's um, blob to kind of import an, an American flat phrase about the language that we use to describe this region and how it shifts over time and, and why that matters. And to be perfectly honest, I kind of get frustrated with that because I think often it obscures much bigger kind of moral questions about the role that the United States is playing in the region. 
but that I think that the language you're right, Mercedes, to point to the to the way that the language is framing to to turn away from Asia Pacific and and shift to Indo Pacific, and again, you know, I think that's about China. I think it's about kind of framing the US's the US's dominant space in this region as in opposition to China and a kind of, I guess, sweeping all those other countries in under the umbrella of the United States and, you know, drastically oversimplifying the complexities of this region. And, and absolutely that has, you know, it's not even colonial undertones. I think it's it's pretty explicit about the United States role in the region, specifically, you know, historically in places like the Philippines, in in US outposts in Guam as well. So again, that that serves a very specific purpose of of excluding certain powers. And again, kind of setting up the United States as in fundamental and irreconcilable opposition to China. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Uprise Radio on 3CR and we're talking with Professor Clinton Fernandez and Dr Emma Shortis about the recent announcement of deepening military ties between Australia, the UK and the US and the purchase of nuclear submarines. Talking a bit about language, Clinton, you published an interesting article in Arena uh, last month entitled The Rules-Based Order. And I, I think it mm-hmm. uh, did a good job of um, expanding on something Emma was mentioning there in the characterization of economic threats as militaristic threats or the way that those two things uh, under capitalism become almost uh, indivisible. And I, I just wonder, like, how something like China offering low-interest loans to developing nations is a threat to this rules-based order. Okay, well, there's two aspects of that. One is just the the notion of a rules-based order is used as an alternative to the United Nations-centered international system and uh, and international law. I mean, if that's what they meant, they could have easily said that, but they can't. They can't say that because I suppose even people in the think tanks uh, won't be able to uh, stop laughing. So you know, they have to use. Uh, uh, you know, rules-based order as a euphemism for empire. Um, and the uh, nature of China's threat and the economic uh, threat that it poses and so on. Well, uh, you know, it can be contrasted with the response of India. Uh, India is in the quad. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in a land-based border dispute with China. And it's also... Uh, you know, the, the country that uh, we seem to be associating with quite closely as a good model in an, an alliance of democracies and so on, it also has the largest proportion, not just the raw numbers, the largest proportion of malnourished and stunted people in the world, of any country in the world. Okay? Uh, China has just eradicated extreme poverty. Now, the Chinese model as a one-party state is not, is not uh, translatable. It doesn't have come with soft power. But the very idea of being able to use your resources and, and the national, the tools of, of uh, national statecraft uh, to eradicate poverty, 
uh, in your own country, uh, you know, has the threat of other countries and or, or forces in other countries saying, well, we'd like some of that too. So that's the, uh, the threat of a good example. Uh, I'm referring only to the economic side, not to the, the, the political monopolization. Um, as for uh, its loans and things like that, uh, China basically uh, does give loans and on occasion, uh, it has to renegotiate, renegotiate loans when the country can't pay. But the term debt trap diplomacy was actually coined by an Indian national security strategist uh, who obviously for his own reasons decided to object to what was going on with China. Uh, the, the countries in the world you know, that are actually taking these loans and getting infrastructure built uh, don't seem to be objecting to it. Uh, in my, anything like the way they objected to, to taking IMF loans and World Bank loans and having to restructure their economies. Uh, uh, at one point after the, the Asian financial crisis, Indonesia uh, was paying more on resurfacing its debt uh, than it was on its healthcare, education, and public housing combined. Okay. And so China's loans don't come with those kinds of uh, uh, control mechanisms. Uh, there are other other reasons, of course, you know, geopolitics and so on. But primarily, I think the idea of, a, of an Asian country so huge uh, going outside the system of free markets uh, and, uh, you know, these massive um, uh, private sector uh, empires and eradicating poverty is an example to poorer countries. We've spoken before on this show and, and I'm you know, sure that everyone here has had these kind of conversations as well about We've also seen, you know, militarization of the police force in, in Australia, much the same way that the US went down that road as well. The kind of impact that it has on small communities, on Aboriginal communities, impacts of Pine Gap, of Talisman Sabre in Queensland and Darwin, the troop bases up there. I think, you know, both Emma and Clinton can, can speak to this. You know, the, obviously the big influence there is is the US. You know, we have US bases, we have the the joint um, Australia-US surveillance base in Pine Gap. What does this say for us as Australian citizens who maybe oppose some of these kind of things or we don't want our country to go down this road of becoming a fully militarised weapon for the United States? You know, what's the alternatives there for the, some of us who oppose these militarization of, of, of our land? Look, I, I wish I knew, you know, I wish I knew what the alternative is. I suppose I would say kind of, in my historical research of, on the alliance between the United States and Australia, that has always been the trajectory, you know, further militarization, deeper security enmeshment. You know, it was only a couple of years ago that Trump's defense secretary was suggesting that we should have some intermediate range missiles posted in Darwin and the Australian kind of establishment reacted with, you know, mild horror and said, oh, no, we couldn't do that because of the, the message it would send to our neighbours. And, you know, less than two years later, we're, we're talking about long range missiles. And that that's generally, historically speaking, is always the trajectory. And it always happens without real consultation, without any real conversation. You know, 11 o'clock the night before, we're told there's an announcement and all of a sudden Australia is going nuclear and there's no accountability. There's no mechanism for, for Australian the Australian people to object to, to that deeper enmeshment. And that's incredibly dangerous. You know, I, I'm sure you'll kind of all be on the same page here in, in the sense that it, that it ties kind of future generations of Australia to that enmeshment and to whoever's in charge of the White House. I think in terms of, you know, actually being able to address it, like you spoke, James, about the impact of that 
militarization, particularly on Indigenous communities in Australia. And that speaks to the heart of Australia's shared values with the United States. You know, we are both countries built on dispossession and genocide. And until Australia actually confronts the reality of that history, there's really no prospect, I think, of really reforming not only Australia's relationship with the United States, but our role in the world more broadly. And, you know, I don't I don't know how I don't know how we do that. Like there's this push, particularly in the kind of land of, of think tanks, as we've talked about to like lay it all out in dot points. This is this is exactly how Australia needs to reform its foreign policy in order to kind of fix everything. And I think, you know, for one thing, that's kind of supremely arrogant, but also the work of reforming Australian foreign policy and of, of having a, an honest reckoning with our history is going to be really messy and really complicated. And it's going to, it has to involve a lot of voices. How we kind of move forward from that, I'm not sure, but it's essential. You know, if we ever want to be able to extract ourselves from this dangerous relationship, then that's what we're going to have to do. Well, I would just say that as to what can be done about it, you know, Australia is not alone. Um, There are other countries in the region and we haven't reached out to them. It's arguable that many people who you know, committed to peace and internationalism and things like that, uh, have no connection whatsoever to the peace movement in, say, New Zealand or in Guam or, or in South Korea or in Japan and the, in, the, in the Okinawa uh, bases where, where you know, the United States is. And so I think a, uh, a kind of a Western or a Pacific uh, type of network that opposes militarism has more success uh, than trying to... Uh, it, trying only to convince uh, or change Australian public opinion here. Because in this country, one side has a megaphone and the other mm-hmm. side comparatively does not. There's a bipartisan consensus that defends the United States bases, the joint facilities in Australia as in Australia's national interest. There's a bipartisan consensus. It's just a one-way, one-way uh, set of opinions. Um, and we haven't actually been attacked or invaded. And so... Uh, you know, if you if you say we're getting nuclear armed submarines, uh, a nuclear nuclear powered submarines, sorry, uh, well, it just sounds to the average person like, well, yeah, why aren't we allowed to have uh, you know a good way of defending ourselves? The question as to what that means, you know, the fact that these submarines, the United States and British submarines, they have nuclear reactors in them, uh, which uh, uh, create and, and which use ninety three point five percent highly enriched uranium. Um, and so, where is that going to be stored? How is that going to uh, work as a as a way of the of, of eliminating fissile material in the nuclear non-proliferation treaty? Because other countries, like say Iran or South Korea or, or Brazil, which is actually next cab off the rank, is going to say we also don't want nuclear weapons. We just want nuclear powered submarines. Oh, and by the way, you know we're going to get. Uh, a lot of highly enriched uranium as a byproduct of, use of, of running these submarines with their nuclear reactor. And, you know, we might do something else with that, with that uh, uh, highly enriched uranium. Uh, and so all those debates have to occur. Uh, and I think the way to do that is to link up with other groups uh, that have similar concerns in our part of the world. Can I, can I maybe just add to that as well that, you know, that work, it's not as if that work isn't already happening. You know, organisations like the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and the Nuclear Ban Treaty are already in place and I think are generating incredible momentum, though it may not always feel like it from here in Australia. You know, that momentum and the, the way that that's changing those norms that Clinton was talking about around nuclear weapons is really significant. So the the structures are in place. And I think increasingly, as it becomes clear that 
Australia's military alliance with the United States is incapable of dealing with actual existential threats like climate change or even a, a global pandemic. You know, I think there is a, a potential moment at least for that kind of bipartisan content, consensus that Clinton was talking about to start shifting, you know, or maybe at least I hope that there is the possibility for that moment. Uh, Clinton, just one last question, and I suppose to both of you actually, um, is in particular rare earths uh, and critical minerals are a point in the context of AUKUS, uh, um, uh, an important point here in terms of defence and technological capabilities. Um, the US has a, a specific plan to try and increase its rare earth capabilities in terms of extraction, exploration yes. and processing. Um, mm -hmm. In 2019, Trump and Morrison signed the Australian-US Joint Action Plan regarding critical minerals. Yep. Um, we are, there are already a couple of strategic partnerships between Australian mining companies and US uh, companies to develop those capabilities onshore. Um, I'm mm -hmm. just wondering what that looks like because there is a lack of transparency around AUKUS and what that means with the subs just being the first initiative of that partnership. How do we contextualise, you know, these, these former partnerships, what that might look like in terms of resource extraction? The short answer is uh, we will be a quarry, but for a different country. Not China, but the United States. Uh, the longer answer is that Geoscience Australia has done a study on critical commodities for a high-tech world, uh, which examines what commodities are needed to, uh, uh, to basically make the future economy work, just the normal high-tech economy. It turns out Australia is very rich in them. And so what we've done is rather than try and get smart manufacturing or advanced techniques in Australia, we've set up a critical minerals facilitation office whose role is to uh, uh, take those minerals and give them to Europe or the United States for them to make smart things. Uh, so uh, that's the basic ambition uh, for us to be a better quarry. And obviously that has impacts, I mean, you know, how, what that means in AUKUS, is this going to potentially uh... I suppose a concern that I have is that is there going to be mission creep in terms of once we have these rare earth mines, what does that mean in terms of uh, under a, a military strategic partnership in terms well, of bypassing or? Well, the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, has, you know, uh, uh, you know hundreds of kilos of, uh, uh, of uh, rare earths in it. Uh, your basic phone has the same thing and uh, electric cars and so on. And so... Um, uh, we will base, we will provide those materials so that the United States can produce them, uh, and with some of the proceeds, uh, you know, from from the rare earths, we will buy those uh, F-35s as well. It's a bit like the Saudi Arabians uh, selling their oil to the United States, but then getting the money from from the oil and using it to buy American uh, high tech weapons. Um, I mean, that's we we are the Saudi Arabia of uranium. And, uh, you know, we are the Saudi Arabia, in a sense, of uh, critical commodities for a high-tech world. Um, and that's the ambition uh, for those who uh, lead us politically, for us to be a better quarry. Can I, um, you know, we've, we've touched a bit on the way that our region will have reacted internally to this recent announcement of us strengthening a very old alliance. And, and both of you in in your writing have highlighted how the Australian psyche has long viewed itself as a European outpost surrounded by others or barbarians, however you want to describe it. Um, and certainly the history of the submarine program with Abbott's cold feet in Japan reflects some of this paranoia. I wonder how you think our closest neighbours, you know, 
you mentioned New Zealand and the Pacific Islands, but perhaps a, a nation like Indonesia and other nations in the Southeast Asian Peninsula see these deepening ties. Emma, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. Well, I think with with significant caution, you know, particularly on the part of Indonesia um, and and other Pacific nations, I think there's there's real concern that this will kick off a kind of you know, and a further or accelerate an arms race in the region. But I think it's been so striking the way, um, you know, coverage of this, you know, new deal, which, as you say, is kind of a, a continuation of an old deal, is being received by um, countries in our region. And the kind of advice coming from that coverage that, you know, the Prime Minister needs to travel to Indonesia to explain why this AUKUS alliance, you know, isn't threatening to the region or why they don't have to worry about this. And, it's for mine, you know, I think that's it's incredibly patronizing because it suggests that countries in our region don't know the history of a, of Australia's relationship with the United States or that they don't know who this country is, you know, that, that this country has long aligned itself with the United States and all of the power that that represents and that that is at least partly motivated by a deep-seated racism. Like to think that you can call this alliance a like revival of the Anglosphere and that people won't know what that means is just kind of incredible. But it it persists, you know. I think there's this perception that we can have this ever-deepening security relationship with the United States based on this essentially shared whiteness and then continue to kind of act in our region as if that, doesn't exist or if that doesn't affect other relationships. And, you know, at the risk of kind of oversimplifying the complexities of foreign policy, that's ridiculous and untenable. Uh, I'll just add that Singapore has uh, tried not to hide it, tried to hide its glee uh, that uh, we're getting nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, Singapore also upholds the American uh, imperial system mm-hmm. in its region in its own way. It's even got a, a squadron of its own aircraft uh, in uh, Guam. Uh, and it has rotations, you know, of course, in the Oki, in Queensland, and so on. Uh, and so it's a kind of a sub-imperial power itself, um, but it can't show that openly. So it's had to say, well, we just hope it's going to be, it's going to add to the stability, et cetera. Uh, but look, public opinion is really where, the, where the, the battlefield is. And in this sense, the alliance with the United States has widespread public opinion. And there's a reason for that. I mean, in a way, uh, it's hard to show that Australia has not benefited. Uh, from the imperial system. This is why it's a magnet uh, for uh, immigrants, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, the, the highly educated uh, classes of uh, foreign countries. Uh, they want to come here. Um, and that's because that system has worked. And so one can understand then why public opinion uh, is, is pro this at this stage. How this, how this all plays out uh, in the months ahead, of course, is... Uh, is up is, is basically anyone's guess. Well, I think the um, Western Pacific Peace Network that Clinton floated earlier, I've written that down. It sounds like a fantastic idea. And I think um, I will agree that we are certainly not speaking for the masses. I think that with some of the events like the one we've got coming up tomorrow night, hopefully we can slowly turn that public opinion around. But I think um, just before we do finish up, I think that... Um, we should shout out to um, Emma's book um, and Emma want to give a plug where, where that's available. And also um, Clinton's book was released a little while ago now, but it's very pertinent to this uh, topic as well. So um, I'm sure that if you search um, in, into the search engine of your choice, um, 
you can find our exceptional friend, Australia's fatal relationship with the United States, uh, and also which is Emma's book, and also Clinton's book, uh, which is an island off the coast of Asia. And I'd recommend everybody check those out. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been a great chat, uh, very illuminating for me and hopefully for our listeners as well. So thanks very much. Anytime. Thank much, thanks guys. for having us. Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Mercedes. Bye-bye. Thank you, Clinton. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all.